Colin was able to sneak out of the house while Leslie slept because he'd given her tranquilizers that she'd washed down with glasses of red wine. He was able to cycle or to jog through the woods by Mount Sandal and enter Hazel's garden through the back gate. With Trevor working nights, they knew they'd be undisturbed. Trevor seemed to be in a better place. He downplayed the affair in conversations and said that he wasn't perfect either, but he was glad to be back in the marital bed. Leslie, on the other hand, was falling deeper and deeper into a depression. She would switch from uncontrollable crying to anger without warning. And those outbursts of anger or sadness were met with complete disinterest from Colin. It didn't matter if she threatened to leave, or if she tore up family photos, or if she followed him while he was on a jog. His silence and his apathy drove her to the brink of despair and paranoia. He resented her for not being able to get on with things as normal at home, and he felt as though he was being left to look after the children and to keep the house clean. Leslie was strong-willed and independent, unlike Hazel, who hung on Colin's every word. The Dentist, His Mistress and the Murders The story of Colin Howell, Hazel Buchanan and the tragic death of their innocent partners Written by Eileen McFarlane Researcher, Clodamini Produced by Ian Mullaney And edited by me, Nicola Talent A Crime World, three-part special By April, Leslie had tried to forgive Colin But she couldn't forget And every time he left the house, she believed he was meeting Hazel. The house itself was still unfinished and without any spare money to hire someone to do the renovations, Colin took it upon himself to get it done. Leslie had bought curtains for the bathroom and I went to B&Q to get a curtain rail, he later said. I took all the children with me and there was a queue and when we got back, Leslie accused me of contacting Hazel. I was filled with outrageous indignation because that one day... I actually hadn't been in touch with Hazel. A confrontation developed over me being late back and it continued. There was an iciness in the house and Leslie put on her dressing gown to get ready for the bath. Leslie carried a cassette player into the bathroom to listen to music as she tried to relax. She was beginning to connect the plug at the top end of the bath and I said she better not set it there because it could fall in. I told her to put it down where she could reach it and I put it at the bottom of the bath. At one point, I sat on the edge of the bath. It was a dark moment and she wouldn't let go of the argument that I had contacted Hazel. A thought went through my head. I want you to shut up. If I throw it in, I could kill you. Although I had no intention of doing that. I showed Leslie the plug. I was in control. And with the unsecured loop of the cable, I flicked it across her back, then dropped the plug on the floor where it made a noise. Leslie looked at me. There was a pregnant pause and a shift of power. I was about to take power back and I wanted her to realise that. I flicked the cable and walked out the door. And she's in the bath and the thought goes into his head, I could kill this lady. This is what he's thinking to himself. In other words, you know, I can be controlling here. I can control this. I'm in control. Leslie remembered the incident differently and she called to a friend to discuss it. I'm telling you this in case anything happens to me, she said. Leslie said that the lead had fallen onto her arm, that she got a small electric shock, but that she was okay. 
Despite the ominous opening of the conversation, she dismissed the interaction as an accident and said that Colin had begged her not to tell anyone about it. But Leslie did tell her friends, and Margaret Topping recalled. She told me sort of almost laughing. She said it was so awful he could not have meant it, but she told me so that I would know. Leslie's friends and sister-in-law advised her to tell the police about it, but she was embarrassed and she pleaded with them not to tell anyone. And there was all of that going on in the house. The marriage is just unravelling, because here was a lady now taking medication, trying to cope with this, with this affair. She knows she's up against a rival. She still wants to uh, save the marriage. Uh, she knows she dads, she buys nice clothes, because she's up against this blonde woman, um, good-looking, and um, she's desperate to save the marriage, probably for the sake of the children. Her friends are counselling her, they're trying to help her through this crisis, but the whole household is not a happy place. There are constant rows. I mean, one day they were heading off to see and visit his in-law, his parents, and put it down. Uh, and the argument in the, uh, in the car became so violent that they had to stop and uh, leave the car with the children inside and try and calm things down. But this is a relationship that's rapidly going out of control. And in some ways, it's the same in the Buchanan household because even though Hall and Trevor Buchanan had shaken hands and said, let's put this behind us and move on, Trevor Buchanan was struggling desperately as well because he knew that even though she told him the affair was over, he just couldn't come to terms with it. He shares his suspicions and fears and whatever else with one of his brothers who's also in the police. He, at one stage, he even assures his brother that he doesn't take his gun home with him. Uh, he leaves it in the police station at night because, you know, he was fearful of what or at least his brother was fearful of what he might do himself. That's how badly he had been affected. And even at one stage, he met up with, with Leslie. The two of them discussed this, uh, this relationship and how they would cope and how they would manage. But these were two deeply, deeply unhappy households. She relied on her father, Harry, for support. She didn't tell him everything about her marital problems, but he could tell by his only daughter that something was wrong. He often gave Leslie a much-needed break by taking the children to the playground or to his house in Castle Rock, which was close to the beach. And he was a man, uh, a businessman in retirement, a man of not considerable means, but a sufficient means to say to his, his daughter, listen, here's some money. Uh, I think you should think about... Uh, living your own life. This man has betrayed you. He's let you down. He's left you a, a, a physical and mental wreck. But Harry hadn't been feeling the best and Leslie's only other sibling, Chris, lived in the UK. She wanted her father close by, so he moved into the Howells' house. Harry was doing well, thanks to the medication his GP had prescribed him, temazepam, gaminol and diazepam. And he was good company for Leslie. On April 7th, 1991, Leslie and Colin had gone out for the evening while a babysitter looked after the children. Harry was at home, but he'd been spending the evening in his room. When Leslie and Colin arrived back at the house, they found Harry unresponsive on the kitchen floor. 
He'd collapsed and died of a suspected heart attack at the age of 69. Leslie was devastated at the loss of her father and her brother Chris travelled over from the UK to attend the funeral. Chris recalled Leslie drinking three glasses of wine after her father's funeral and quickly becoming incapacitated. As someone in the medical field, he could tell that his sister had taken more than a few glasses of wine and he questioned Colin about it. Colin admitted that he'd given Leslie something to help her sleep and Chris was furious with him that he would allow her to take medication while she was drinking. Other people noticed how distant Colin was while his wife was clearly struggling with her grief. He'd make excuses to leave the house, claiming he'd errands to run or that he was going on a jog, but the reality was he was running straight to Hazel. Leslie had inherited a large sum of money from her father's estate and she told friends that she was planning on leaving with the children now that she was financially independent. She lodged the money into a separate bank account so Colin couldn't get at it. Friends remembered Leslie being forgetful and dishevelled in the weeks following her father's death, likely due to the fact that Colin was feeding her sedatives to ensure that she didn't wake up while he snuck out to meet Hazel climbing through the window she left unlatched for him. On one occasion, when Leslie did rouse from her drug-induced slumber, Colin had just arrived back and he convinced her that he'd just come to the kitchen for a glass of water. Leslie was a shadow of her former self, having lost all trust in her husband. And the only other man she loved had just died. I came home from work one day and Leslie had drunk too much wine and was unconscious on the floor and had vomited, Colin later said. I thought it was blood at first, but it was red wine, and Daniel was standing there holding a full bottle of milk. Before the affair, she wasn't like that. That one incident, to me, was a point where I realised I'd caused her so much pain and distress. I acknowledged that it was me who'd done it to her. She just couldn't cope with the pain I'd caused with the affair. Another incident, a few days later, solidified his realisation. Colin recalled... She was just inconsolable for such a long time and on the 13th of May in bed at about two or three in the morning she sat upright and she said things like my life is destroyed Trevor's life is destroyed we'll never get over this saying things like that and then she sat up in bed and her eyes brightened and she said I think I'm going to go to heaven soon and she said you know maybe you and her were always meant to be together and then she lay down and sighed and went to sleep a really really peaceful sleep When she said that, I felt this almost instant love for her. And I thought, I can help you. And in a moment, the whole idea was born. Leslie Hall is in the depths of despair. She's lost her father. She's finds herself on her own. She's doing her level best. She's drinking uh, probably more than she should. And one night they're in bed and... You know, obviously they're, they're, they're arguing, they're having this discussion and she says, you know, Colin, you know, um, maybe you'd be better off with, with Hazel and I maybe be better off if I was dead. And Hyle, being Hyle, thought to himself, well, hold on, if you want to die, maybe I can help you. I can help you get there. If that's what you really want. But this is what he sent himself. If that's what you really want, I think I can get you there. So that's when the whole scenario starts to develop. Over the next few days, Leslie would fall asleep on the couch in the living room with a box of red wine. 
Colin continued to meet with Hazel whenever he had the chance and he shared his idea with her, telling her that he'd come up with a way for them to be together and that she'd have a role to play. Basically, Hall has decided that, you know, he, he, he cooks up this plan and one night he's with his lover and he says, listen, I think we can do something here. We can, we can, we can, we can get rid of these two people. Saturday, May 18th, 1991, was a happy occasion in the Howell House. The second youngest child was turning two years old and a small gathering took place to celebrate. Leslie had a few things to do in town, so she left the house before midday to get her hair done, buy a new dress and grab a coffee. A friend met her in the coffee shop and said she seemed to be in good form. It's a Saturday afternoon. Hazel and, uh, and Trevor and the two children head off to do some shopping uh, outside Belfast. And they're rowing the whole way there and they're rowing the whole way back. They've come home early. Hal's wife, Leslie, has some friends in for this child's birthday party. Hal is out in the garage getting ready to murder his wife. He's got a baby bottle in his hand and he's sawing the bottle so it can fit over a hose. And this is going on while Tottenham Hotspur are playing Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup final because he can hear the he can hear the the commentator in the background about all the noise and partying that's going on with the children inside the house. After returning home and celebrating her son's birthday, Leslie left the house again at five thirty to go to the salon for a sunbed session. She thought she had booked for six p.m., but she'd got the time wrong, and the appointment wasn't until seven. During the hour she had to kill, she went to get petrol on the Ballymoney Road. At the service station, an attendant recognised her and became concerned when it looked as though she was about to put diesel into her petrol engine. She seemed to be staggering and looked disorientated, but they couldn't detect a scent of alcohol from her breath. Regardless, they called Colin to let him know, and he called back to let them know she was fine. She'd stopped at the house before she went back to the salon for the sunbed appointment, he said. By 7.30pm, she hadn't come out of the tanning room. So one of the staff went to check on her and found her asleep in the sunbed. Leslie laughed it off and booked another appointment for two days later. As she left, she called out, See you Monday. After returning home, the children were still awake, but Leslie retreated to the living room with a three-litre box of wine and left Colin to put them to bed. Watching his wife drown her sorrows once more, Colin felt that he couldn't stand it any longer and he knew that he had caused it. That night, the kids are asleep and uh, Leslie's taking herself off to the sofa as usual. She'd been drinking and basically she, she falls asleep. She's probably in a stupor. And Hoyle begins the plan. He goes out to the garage, he switches on the ignition the car begins to run. He puts the baby's bottle over the exhaust pipe, runs a hose through the house. Leslie's under the duvet. I'll make sure that the children's door uh, can't be opened. He puts a hockey stick down the door so it can't open. He runs the, the hose through the hallway into her room where she's lying in the settee 
he pushes the hose pipe under the duvet and steps back. He can smell the fumes and suddenly Leslie begins to rise and she doesn't know what's going on and Hal realizes he has to act quickly here because, you know, this lady's going to come around and so he jumps on top of her and she cries out. It's um, for their son, Matthew. And basically Hal murders his wife. She struggles to try and free herself but he won't let her get out of the, out of the, out of the uh, out from under the duvet. He then takes her out, dresses her and clothes, takes her outside and puts her under the boot of the car, as well as the hose and the bicycle. He then goes to the phone and he rings his lover, who's in, who's in bed with her husband, who's fast asleep. And they've devised this way of contacting each other. He would, the phone would just click once, not ring out, just click, and she would know it's hard trying to get in contact with her. She gets out of the bed, picks up the phone, and it's hard. And he says, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Leslie's in the boot. Now, Hazel Buchanan at that stage knew exactly what was going to happen next. She goes outside and reverses their car out of the garage to the front of the house. It's a white Toyota Corolla. To give Hal the space he needs to drive his car into the garage and do the exact same as he did with his wife. And sure enough, he drives into the garage. She's there. She's moving about. Her door is fastened where her two children are asleep. And Hal does the exact same, runs the hose through the house into the bedroom where Trevor Buchanan was fast asleep. And he had taken a sedative because he was having difficulty going to sleep. Hal goes into the room, does the same, and Trevor wakes up and realizing his life's in mortal danger, he struggles violently to try and save himself. But Hal overcomes him. At one stage, Trevor's watch falls off under the bedroom floor. Hazel's right side. She's moving about from room to room. At one stage, Hal leaves the house because he's so he's 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 going he's going to be sick. But he's still thinking, if I vomit in this in this room, my DNA is all over this place. So he goes outside into the back garden, which he's familiar with. Remember, this was the place he used to climb over the hedge, get into the house. He goes outside and he's sick. He comes back into the room, into the house, and Hazel, repeat, Hazel has laid out the clothes to dress her husband. Hal then tells her, I want you to dispose of this hose. And Hal then heads off to Castle Rock. Two bodies and a bicycle and a boot alongside some photographs and he's taken uh, family photographs and uh, um, heads off to Castle Rock, basically to stage manage these two suicides. Initially, he was going to go to the beach in Castle Rock, but he thought, hold on a second. If I go there, they'll see tire marks, they'll see my footprints. No. And he's thinking very quickly on his feet here. 
and he decided, no, I'll go to a row of houses known as the Apostles overlooking Castle Rock, where Leslie's late father had owned a house number six, and he knew there was a garage behind that. And this is where he stage manages the two murders to look like suicides. He takes Trevor out of the car, pulls him around into the driver's seat, puts his hand on the, on the steering wheel. His right leg is jammed against the door. They can't, he can't shut the door. His wife, meanwhile, is in the boot. Uh, and and he's, he's already dressed her. He lays out some family photographs of both of them together and of the children and so on. And then he, he, he has a... a, a a tape recorder which which plays music that Baptist type music that that, that uh, Leslie liked. Placed the set on her ears, pushed the play button, and decides that's that's it. He switches on the ignition because he's an old um, uh, hose from a from a cleaning unit that he uses to run from the exhaust pipe into the boot where his wife was and he then leaves the scene. He runs down onto the beach along the beach at Castle Rock over the local golf course at Castle Rock Golf Club which adjoins uh, and close to the beach and he goes to the back of the 15 where he's already left the bike while he was on his way to Castle Rock. He picks up the bicycle from a hedge behind the 15 and cycles home as it begins to get light. And that's what happened the night in May 1991 when he murdered his wife and Trevor Buchanan. Just before 9am the following morning, Colin called Jim Flanagan, one of the church elders, and asked him if he would help him look for Leslie. He said that she'd driven off during the night and that he believed she was with Trevor Buchanan. Jim called over to the house where Colin sat holding a six-month-old baby as the three older children played happily. He passed Jim a note that he said he'd found when Leslie left. It read, Dear Colin, I'm just trying to go to sleep now. How long for, I don't know. Thank you for your help over the past few days and for the good times in our marriage. I don't know what to say to you because I don't know how I feel but I've seen that life goes on after a few weeks of pain and let's face it, Colin, I'm nothing in comparison to what you lost in the one you loved a while back. If I wake up in the morning, just let this be our secret. All my love, Leslie. He asked Jim if he would check Leslie's father's house at the Twelve Apostles to see if she was there, but Jim returned within a short time and said he didn't see any sign of them. Collins suggested that Leslie and Trevor could have gotten on a ferry and left the country. Jim said he would check that after Sunday service. In the meantime, Colin called another member of their church and the Buchanan's neighbour, Derek McCauley, and asked him to come over. He told Derek the same thing he'd told Jim and asked if he would too check Leslie's father's house. Colin said that Trevor had called to his house during the night and confronted him before leaving again. Derek drove to the Twelve Apostles and walked around the property, glancing in the windows for any sign of Leslie or Trevor. As he approached the garage at the rear of the house, he saw a car parked inside. But his attention was drawn to an upstairs window when he thought he saw someone moving around inside. 
He called out to who he believed to be Trevor and said, catch yourself on before he drove back to Colin's house. Derek had been speaking with Trevor just the night before. He'd called over for a chat and said he seemed to be in good form. His wife was close to Hazel and just as Derek was looking for Trevor, Hazel called Derek's wife to tell her that Trevor had left during the night with Leslie. Hazel was in a distressed state and told her friends that she had woken up during the night and heard Trevor and Leslie speaking in the hallway. Afraid to confront them, she said she'd stayed in bed, but when she woke up the next morning, Trevor wasn't beside her. He wasn't in the house at all. Colin called Jim Flanagan at around 12.30pm and asked him to check the 12 apostles once more. He said he'd give them the keys. Jim asked police officer David Green to go with him. Officer Green was also a member of the church and he agreed. They arrived at the Twelve Apostles at approximately 1.20pm and unlocked the house to check inside. While Officer Green was looking around the bedrooms, Jim went to check the garage at the back of the house. When he lifted the door, he saw the Howells Renault 21 estate car had been reversed in and barely visible over the steering wheel. He saw Trevor Buchanan slumped in the front seat. Jim called out for Officer Green and they both ran to check Trevor's pulse. It was then that they saw Leslie Howell laid out on her back in the boot wearing headphones. They were both dead. Leslie was just 31 while Trevor was 32 years old. The Dentist, His Mistress and the Murders The story of Colin Howell, Hazel Buchanan and the tragic death of their innocent partners Written by Eileen McFarlane Researcher, Claude Amini Produced by Ian Mullaney And edited by me, Nicola Talent A Crime World, three-part special <laughs>